Thank you for the fan, Justin. I fear I may have been slain in the spirit by the end of the message. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 1 through the beginning of verse 5. And we're calling this, Jesus predicts the end. Mark 13, 1 through 5. The public ministry of Jesus began with the proclamation that the kingdom of God was at hand. Do you remember that all the way back in chapter 1, verse 15, I believe? Repent. Jesus came out. Preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. If you remember just a few chapters ago, three of the disciples, those who were in the inner circle, saw the glorified Jesus on the mount. And they, they know and they anticipate fully and with firm conviction what really all Israel is anticipating at this point is that all of the messianic promises, all of the messianic expectations are going to be fulfilled by the man who is now in their midst, the man who has triumphantly rode into into Jerusalem and who is now openly being called Messiah, son of David, King, Lord. Not only is he openly called these things, he's openly accepting these things. So you must imagine then the confusion in the disciples and the people who were following Jesus into Jerusalem on the day of the triumphal entry when you have the the, the thousands and thousands of people in the crowds who are cheering for Jesus when Jesus says this, and I've read this before in Luke 19. He says, if you had known in this day, and he's weeping while he says this, mind you, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. I've never heard a president say that in his, in his presidential speech. In Matthew's gospel, right after laying down the polemical devastation to the scribes and the Pharisees, which we looked at uh, uh, two weeks ago, you remember the, 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 the many woes, the woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. After, after that long diatribe of condemnation, Jesus said this while everybody is still present. He says this. This is Matthew twenty three thirteen, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you, so he's not just talking to the leaders, this is to the people, this is, this is a comprehensive charge to the whole lot of them. You were not willing. Behold, your house, which could be very well an allusion to the temple, your house is being left to you desolate. Immediately following Those words in Matthew 23 comes what he says in Matthew 24, which is what we have in Mark 13. This is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. It is here that Jesus is going to tell the 12 about the great and terrible things that are going to happen to Israel and that are going to happen in the world just before the end comes and He appears in power, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. And everything in history is going to be wrapped up and completed. Now, we're just going to get to the the initial part of verse 5. So we're going to divide this into three parts. In verses 1 and 2, we see the foretelling of the destruction of the temple. We have the disciples follow-up question in verses 3 and 4. And then Jesus will begin to give the full disclosure 
in verse 5. And he will take the remainder of the chapter to give the full disclosure. It's, it's ironic. Mark is a, is a writer who has emphasized action. It's almost like he has a, a, a ADD. He, he can't sit still for too long. He gets bored if you talk to him for too long. He wants action. He wants things done. And we have seen the majority of Mark's text dedicated to Jesus going and doing and healing and preaching and very little bit, uh, the very little bit of his teaching we have seen in abbreviation. Well, we will see 30, let's see, quick math, 34. 33 verses dedicated to Jesus's full disclosure as what's going to happen. And we are only going to, my goal today is to set up the diving board and to usher us onto the diving board and to look down and stop right there. That's what I want us to do today. Let's read Mark 13, 1 through 5. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them. We'll begin looking at the foretelling of the temple's destruction because that is really what kicks off this entire discourse. The foretelling of the temple's destruction. If you look at verse 1 begins with Jesus going out of the temple. Now, on the previous day, Jesus had come into the temple grounds, and he had went on a holy and righteous rampage. And he was fueled by, by righteous fury, righteous indignation, because you, you remember what the priests and the rulers had turned the temple into. It was, it was supposed to be, what, a house of prayer for all the nations. What did they turn it into? What? A den of robbers. A den of thieves. It was supposed to be a sanctuary. Instead it had been turned into a hideout. For those who took advantage. Of the people. You will recall. That Jesus drove, spent the day. And he drove everybody out. He, he drove those selling. He drove out those buying. He even drove out those who were just simply using the temple grounds as a convenience for ferrying their wares in and out of the city. The the temple was on the eastern side of the city, and it had been turned into a thoroughfare, into a freeway. Well, Jesus wouldn't even allow them to do that. He had utterly and completely purged the temple for one day. He had purged the temple of its mercantile corruption. That was one beautiful day. For one gracious, glorious day, imagine this, it was God's temple. It was God's temple and God's unadulterated words could be heard. And in, and in Christ Jesus, think about this, God, not just figuratively, he literally walked among his people. What a beautiful day, what a joyous day that had begun. But did it stay that way? Now, the Sanhedrin had showed up. They had turned what was to be a beautiful and a joyous time for the Lord into a grueling gauntlet. And you remember, they had presented trap after trap after trap. And even though he answered each and every one well, he answered them well. He answered them to the excitement of the people. And he sent the rulers home licking their wounded pride. Nevertheless, I'm sure it was a long, arduous, grueling, annoying day for the Lord. It is now evening at the conclusion of this terribly long Day. This day started in the middle of chapter 11 and continued all the way through chapter 12. 
and is now concluding in chapter 13. It is now evening. The sun is beginning to set. The time has come for Jesus to return to Bethany. That's where he's lodging. John tells us he lodged with uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He is leaving the temple grounds, mark this, for the last time. You remember this is where he showed up when he was he, he was brought to the temple and presented to the priests according to the law. He was, uh, as a young boy, he came and uh, confounded the, 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 the teachers and the priests with his uh, incredible, uh, seemingly supernatural understanding of the scriptures, even as a young boy. He has been a law-abiding Jew for however many years he's been alive. He has frequented this temple his entire life. This is now his last time. So you you must taste the the sobriety that is just pungent in the air. He will not set foot on this on these temple grounds again. He and has concluded his public ministry. Not only is he leaving the temple for the last time, this is the last time that he will have spoken or rather, he has already concluded the last time that he would speak publicly and openly to the people. And the few remaining grains of sand that are left in the hourglass, he is going to devote entirely to the twelve to prepare them for what lay ahead. So, as verse 1 tells us, he's leaving the temple. And as he's leaving, Verse 1 tells us that one of his disciples, we're not told who, it's probably Peter, because what he says just reminisces of, a, of a, like it's coming out of a foot-shaped mouth. So it's probably Peter. He unsubtly and forcefully remarks about the grandeur and the beauty and the magnificence of the temple. Do you see that right there? Verse 1. Now, uh, Jason, can you show the first picture? Okay, so it's evening. Where where can I go so I'm not in anybody's? Do I can everybody see that? Okay, this this is evening, and the the sun's lowering rays, the few remaining fading rays of light, are coming across the horizon, and it's hitting the stones, and it's hitting the metal, and it's hitting the temple. And, and all the homes, it's giving the entire city this sweeping golden hue. And it was indeed a beautiful sight to behold. No building could compare. No building could even hope to rival the magnificence and the grandeur and the beauty of the first century Jerusalem temple. The temple was situated on a plateau. It is, it's on the eastern side of the city. It is on the western uh, cleft or the western ridge of the Kidron Valley, which is also on the eastern side of the city. On the other side of the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives. The temple and its surrounding buildings stood as one of the architectural marvels of the ancient world. It was built of a polished white stone called a Herodian ashland. Each one was laced with gold, and it said that its, an, its eastern wall was completely covered in gold. The main sanctuary gleamed in the evening light as if it was a massive, humongous, priceless jewel. It was easily, without argument... Without equivocation, it was the greatest, grandest, most eloquent, most impressive, most ornate. It was the most regal temple that ever existed in the old world. There is no question, no contest. Now, mind you, this is not the original temple that you read about in the Old Testament. This is not Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed by who? Babylonians, good. So when when the when the Jews returned from their Babylonian exile, they they rebuilt the temple eventually, and it was it was just a mere shadow of its former glory. It was just this little paltry cracker box of a temple. Well, 
One of the first things that Herod the Great did when he was appointed as king of Judea by Caesar was he renovated and overhauled this little paltry cracker box temple. He wanted to put his name on it, and it's backed it's backed by his money, it's backed by Rome's money, and he transformed it. He overhauled it into what history knows as Herod's temple. He greatly expanded the whole shebang. He rebuilt the sanctuary with these, with these beautiful, uh, as I said, they were called Herodian Ashlands. They're these big, massive, beautiful, white, polished stones. And he threw a king's ransom worth of gold on the building. He added numerous porticos and colonnades and patios and courtyards. And we've talked about some of those in, in previous passages. The point is, Absolutely no expense was held back when Herod was building this temple. And Steve Lawson says the temple was enlarged to the point that it occupied about a sixth of the real estate of Jerusalem at the time. It was a, it, it, it was almost as much a temple, the city was almost as much a temple as it was a city. And John 2.20 tells us that the temple was in its 46th year of construction and history says it wasn't completed until 64 ad beloved that is almost a 80 year building project but look at what was look at what it was when it was done and by the time of jesus and and the apostles it is it is practically all done it's just all the fine work that took another 30 years to do so I guess the point of all this, ladies, is when your husbands seem to take a long time to, to finish a project, don't rush because marvels don't happen overnight. Just give them some t- time. Okay, so one of the reasons it took so stinking long to build was because of the sheer size of the stones used. Uh, can, Jason, can you go to the next one? Okay, so these are the Herodian Ashlers. I took this photo when we went to Jerusalem. And what you can't see is one starts here and ends over there. These are what the stones look like on the, on the outside. And they're basically like big, um, big Jenga sticks. These stones, these Herodian ashlers, Josephus tells us, we, we don't have any that we have found uh, that, that match the description that Josephus provides. Josephus was a historian who lived in the late 1st century and early 2nd century, he said that uh, there were some as big as, and he says it in cubits, I'm going to do you a favor, translate it to feet, 67 and a half by 7 and a half by 9 feet for some. Others were 37 and a half by 12 by 18. So these are boxcar rocks. And while we, we haven't found any that big, remember the whole place was demolished, uh, we have in the past century, we have found, not we, but archaeologists uh, have found a, a large stone on the second tier of the Western Foundation that measures 42 feet long, 14 feet wide, 11 feet tall, and is estimated by, by Robert Stein, or at least Robert Stein provides this, this uh, estimate, Approximately 600 tons. Now, not every, not every stone was that big, but that's, that's one of them. Uh, two other stones that we found, which I believe the one on the left is 41 feet long. Um, there have been others found that are 40 and 25 feet long. This was a construction marvel that pe- people in the old world could lift these things. They, they seems they weren't idiots as a lot of people like to think they were josephus says this the exterior of the building was covered on all sides on all sides with massive plates of gold the sun was no sooner up that it radiated so fiery a blast a a flash that anybody straining to look at the temple was compelled to avert their eyes kind of like when you're driving to work in the morning and you come over the horizon and all of a sudden the sun's in your eyes and you know like that to approaching strangers, it appeared like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. 
And so it would have been a blinding sight in the morning, especially uh, if you were on the Mount of Olives and, and you're approaching from the east going into the city and the eastern, the eastern sun is reflecting. Just imagine being blind as you come over the horizon and, oh, there's the temple. And you just burned a hole in your forehead like a, like a magnifying glass. It would have been blinding in the morning, but it would have been bedazzling with the golden hue of the evening sun. And the rabbis had a saying, he who has not seen the temple has never seen a glorious building in his life. When one marveled at the great size and the the undeniable beauty of this edifice, of the temple and its buildings and its walls and, and the annexes and everything that was thrown onto it, one was given... The impression, uh, the, the impression that, that these disciples have, even for the hundredth time that they've seen this place, is the impression of permanence. This is a building, beloved, that is not easily being swept away in history. At least that's, that's the impression. This was, this was a building that wasn't going anywhere, that no disaster, no war, it seemed, could dislodge or destroy this magnificent structure. And now you have to remember, in light of what Jesus has been uh, saying numerous times, in, in light of what he has alluded to numerous times over the last week, remember he said, uh, coming into the city in, in Luke 19, no stones will be left upon another. Uh, and then in Mark 12, in the parable of the, tenant, uh, the vineyard, the vine growers, he said that the owner of the vineyard would come and he would destroy the fine growers and give the vineyard to others. Uh, and then in Matthew 23, after uh, condemning the scribes and the Pharisees and the leadership of Israel, he said that the house of Israel would be left, what? Desolate, destroyed, ravished. And so this unnamed disciple, again, probably Peter, says out loud what probably the entire group is thinking, what about the temple? I mean, look at how big this glorious, wonderful temple is. Look look how grand it is. Look how impressive it is. Look how great it is. Look at all these wonderful stones. Look at the craftsmanship. Look how wonderful all these buildings and annexes and complexes are. And Jesus responds to him. I wonder, was there a sigh? Was there a groan? Was there a pause? Jesus responds to him. And I'm not sure if this is coming across as a question or it's more of an accusation. It could be, do you see these great buildings? Or, or it could be, you're looking at these buildings. You're, you're looking at the greatness. You're, you're obsessed. You're fascinated. You're impressed with these great buildings that's what you're focused on that's what has occupied your mind you think to uh to borrow a a quote something that was said about the titanic you think this building is too big to fail well it will fail because it will fall look at what jesus says not one Stone, and he he says this depending on what translation you have uh, in the in the NASB, which all God's people should have. It's uh, it, it carries what the Greek does; is it provides the double negative. Now, some of your translations, like the NIV, may just say everything's coming down and just put it in the positive. But he says, "Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn." down the idea is 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 the whole place gets leveled and oh maybe there was one stone left well god's going to come back and he's going to flick it over not a single stone will be left in place in what once comprised this great temple the great complex these great buildings the colonnade the wall the the anatonia fortress everything it's all coming down now, as beautiful and, and as impressive and as grand as the temple was, Jesus had made it very clear in, in Mark's previous scene, if you remember, that for, for all God cared, the wealth of the whole world could be thrown into the treasury, and that's not going to impress God. Remember that? All the wealth 
of the world could be thrown into this temple. The greatest craftsmen, all the gold, all the silver, all all of these magnificent stones and, and all that man can find and build could be thrown into the construction of this temple and God doesn't care. God doesn't care with what was given to him. He Jesus showed us in the last passage that he was concerned how it was given to him. And by and large, you have to think about what had the temple come to represent. The temple had not come to represent the simple and abiding childlike faith that we saw in that poor widow. The temple rather had come to represent the self-righteous and hypocritical and the pretentious religion of the religious leaders. And so this temple had become basically a giant, gold-laced, white, polished, whitewashed tomb. Very impressive on the outside. Awe-inspiring on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. Inside full of corruption. The temple had become a monument to apostate religion. Religion that stood... that took a stand away from God, that took a stand against its God. And the people who dwelt in the temple, they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. That is what the temple had come to represent. So as we examine Jesus's prophecy about what is going to befall the temple in verse 2, we will see that there is a dual fulfillment and, and that observation is going to guide our interpretation of what follows. Now, before you think I've gone all crazy with prophecy, I, I want to state that this, this dual fulfillment isn't something that happened all the time. This was not a norm for prophecy. Uh, if the prophet was, was given a prophecy by God, he wouldn't turn it over and see, and see a label that, or a warning that says this prophecy will be fulfilled in two parts. But what did happen on occasion is that there, when a prophet, when God had given a prophet a message, there would be a, a near fulfillment and there would be a far fulfillment. Not every time, but sometimes. The near fulfillment would often happen in the very hour, in the very day, in the very week. Uh, it would happen imminently or in the lifetime or very soon after the prophet left the scene. And then there would yet be a later and often a greater fulfillment of the same prophecy, perhaps even centuries later. And one example of this, and I, I could go hog wild, much to your uh, entertainment. I, uh, I think a good example of this is seen in Isaiah 7.14. This is a passage you've probably, uh, all of you have heard on, on Christmas. Isaiah 7:14 The Lord himself will give you a sign behold the virgin will be with child and bear a son. Any, has anybody not heard that one? Okay. So in context this is Isaiah speaking to King Ahaz who was of the 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 line of David, he was of Judah, he was a, he was a, a one of the sons of David and God God tells Isaiah to tell Ahaz that God will give him a sign to demonstrate that God has not forgotten the lineage of of David and he's trying to encourage Ahaz to get with it and to repent of his sins and to not turn to Assyria and not turn to uh, Egypt or or any of these other nations but actually to um, amazingly trust in the God of Israel among all things. And he says, he will give you a sign to confirm his faithfulness. In the very next chapter, you have the birth of Isaiah's son, uh, which would have been a sign to, to Ahaz. Now, we know the greater fulfillment of that passage is what? Is who? Jesus, who happened to come 600 years later. Ahaz, could, that could not have been a sign to Ahaz because he would not have been alive to see the child. So there was a near fulfillment in the birth of Isaiah's son, 
which is which happens in the very next chapter, chapter eight, and then you yet you have a greater fulfillment, which Matthew points to, I believe, in Matthew chapter two. So this is just to show you that I'm not pulling something out of thin air. I'm not pulling something out of my hat. This is something that does happen occasionally in Scripture. Now, the near fulfillment, let's go back to Mark chapter 13. The near fulfillment of verse 2 will occur in approximately 40 years. In 66 AD, the Zealot party will... Remember the Zealots? We've talked about them. Uh, these are the ones who wanted to, uh, to uh, uh, liberate uh, Israel from Roman occupation. Now, in 66 AD, the Zealots started to get some traction with the majority of the Jews. In the time of Jesus, they're kind of fringy. Nobody really wants to uh, at least openly associate with them. But by 66 AD, more and more and more people are starting to throw in their sympathy and their support for the Zealots. And uh, there, there's an uprising against the Roman occupation that's, that starts to build, and the Romans... Uh, uh, respond by sending, uh, Caesar responds by sending his commander, Titus Vespasian. And I'm not sure exactly what year he sent, but this is the, this is the conflict that will culminate in 70 AD. Titus brings with him legions of soldiers to quell this, this uprising and this challenge to Rome. Now what's interesting is Caesar, the emperor, gave Titus orders not to destroy Herod's temple. Why would he say that? Why do you think? Oh, well, thank you for asking. I'll tell you. Uh, One, the temple was was built under the patronage of who? Did the Jews support, did, did, did the Jews finance and plan this temple? No. This temple was built under the patronage of Herod. It had Herod's name on it. When people saw it, they didn't see just the, the temple of Israel. They saw the temple of Israel that Herod built. It has Herod's name and stamp on it. Secondly, it had become a symbol, I think, of the hope, at least in the eyes of the Romans, it had become a symbol of the hope that Rome and Israel could coexist as sovereign and vassal, as lord and subject. Now that's a relationship the Romans wanted to keep. That was not a relationship the Jews wanted to keep. So the the, the Romans uh, wanted to keep this temple intact while there was an... O- so those are at least what the orders were. Reports are is that there was an overzealous sol- Roman soldier who ran into the temple. He must have really uh, hated the Jews. He must have wanted this to escalate. He ran uh, purportedly into the temple with a torch, and he started a fire that consumed the place. Now, if, if those of you, if there are any critical thinkers out there, so we know that the temple was built with a lot of stone and a lot of gold, not exactly flammable stuff. Well, I found out that one of the courtyards uh, within the uh, the um, within the court of the women was called the court of wood. Now. This is, my guess is, that I found this in the 11th hour of my study. I didn't have time to confirm this. My theory is that this was the storehouse. This was the warehouse for all the, 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 the beautiful and ornate and expensive and real good quality wood that was donated to the temple for, for construction. Uh, you have a warehouse full of stacked wood. That'll burn. That'll burn. So if you get that that courtyard, that chamber, however big it was, you get that on fire, it's going to spread. So the uh, a riot ensues between uh, those in the temple and the Jews and, and, the, and the Romans. And so the rest of the Roman army arrives to pacify them. And meanwhile, in, the, uh, in this chaos, the temple is crumbling apart. These massive stones are getting hot and they start cracking and they start breaking and they start falling. And it literally starts raining gold. The gold plates come crashing down. The, the gold that was interlaced into the stone and, and outlining the stone start, start falling down and clanging on the ground. And they are, now not, they are no longer embedded in the stone. They are now available for the taking. And the temple grounds, which is literally falling apart, and, uh, and there's a battle going on, the, the temple grounds now become a looter's treasure trove. 
So when the dust cleared, all that remains were just a, f- a number of the found of these massive foundation stones. The this all the stones that made the building are gone. Some of these foundation stones, which would have been uh, uh, underneath everything else, only a few of those are are what what was left. So all the great and wondrous buildings themselves reduced to rubble, just like Jesus said. That was the near fulfillment. There is yet a far fulfillment, which will take place after Jerusalem, and presumably the temple have been rebuilt. Zechariah 14, 2 through 4 says this, where God is saying, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled. And the, and, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. So you have people that, are, that, that, are, that, are, uh, that have died within the city. You have people that are still alive in the city, but they're cornered. Uh, massive parts of the, great proportions of the city have been destroyed. Kind of sounds like 70 AD. And then... Uh, Zechariah continues, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In, his, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Hmm, where's Jesus giving this discourse right now? And this is where he will return in, his, in the second coming. Now, the best place to put Zechariah 14, 2 through 4, is in Revelation 19, starting at verse 11. And this is where Jesus returns, not as the suffering servant that we see in the Gospels. This is the conquering King Jesus. This is the Jesus whose eyes are full of flaming fire and who has a sword that comes out of his mouth that slays the nations. And he has a rod of iron that dashes them to pieces. And he has many diadems on his head. This is that Jesus. He will return, and just prior to his arrival, Jerusalem will be utterly devastated by foreign powers. And presuming that the temple is rebuilt and made to be great and wondrous as it was before, it will be looted and leveled again in that day, just as it was in 70 AD. So a near fulfillment, far fulfillment. Now, there's... Uh, I make a big deal about that, uh, and I'm going to comment more on that in a little bit. Let's go to the let's go to the verses three and four, as we look at the follow up question by the disciples. Verse verse three. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, so the scene now shifts. He's no longer leaving the temple grounds. He has crossed the Kidron Valley that gorge, and he is now sitting on the Mount of Olives. And he is sitting. This is, this is what rabbis, this is what Jewish teachers did when they were taught teaching. Remember, uh, remember back to the days of the USS pulpit. Jesus stood, or Jesus sat in the boat. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount, he sat on, on the mountain. Remember in the treasury when he observes the, the widow, he calls his disciples over, he's sitting. So, uh, Jason, can you go to the next one? Okay, can, yeah, can you get those lights off? So this is what Israel, or this is what Jerusalem and the Temple Mount would have looked, what, what it would have looked like in the first century. Now, just, you remember that golden hue that was on the previous picture? Just overlay that with this. Imagine that Thomas Kincaid painted this picture. And and on the temple mount, on the temple right here, just imagine that he painted like some five thousand lumens shop light that is just blinding you as you're as you're looking at it. That is the classroom backdrop for what Jesus is saying. This is their vantage point. They 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 see the entire city. They see the temple. They see the entire temple complex. And that is the occasion for Peter and James and John and Andrew to question him privately. Now, whether it's in the classroom or whether it's in the workplace, we all know that there are some people who just seem to have a better connection with the teacher or with the boss. 
whether it's asking the tough question, whether it's giving the boss the bad news, there's always seemed to be that one guy who it's better if they ask the question. It's better if they uh, give the news to the boss rather than you or me. That's just how the way it is sometimes. That seems to be the relationship that Peter and James and John had. This is the first time Andrew shows up to the scene, but he is, if you remember, Peter's brother. So having, being family has its benefits. But clearly the disciples, they are either some of them or most of them, I, I think most of them are unnerved by what, they said, by what Jesus has said. And so either these four are approaching them out of their initiative or the group as a whole, is, is pushing them, hey, go ask Jesus. What, what does he mean the whole place is going to come tumbling down? Look how, look how incredible this is. This is even backed by the power of Rome. How, how on earth could he say this is going to fall apart? And so they ask, ask Jesus two questions. Two questions. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled. That's in verse 4. When will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Now, what does he mean by all things? What I think he's doing is, is he's, take, he's, he's taking everything that has been thrown into the mixing pot. He is uh, alluding to everything that the people have been expecting of the Christ, the uh, namely, the coming of the kingdom, the exaltation of Israel, and the subjugation of her enemies. And I think they're also adding in everything, all the things that Jesus has been saying of late that is also going to happen. Remember in Mark eight thirty eight, Jesus said the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father. Remember, for three of these guys, this is glory that they have seen with their eyeballs up on the mount. Jesus, as the Son of Man, is going to come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Then there's the repeated prediction that Jesus is going to be rejected and suffer and die and rise again. Then there's the 12 glorious thrones that the disciples will sit on alongside Jesus in the kingdom. Then there's uh, uh, Mark 12, 9, where God is going to destroy the vine growers and give them the vineyard. Then there's the coming judgment for Israel for not recognizing her time of visitation where no stone will be left upon another. Then there's the greater condemnation for the leaders, which we saw in Mark 1240. There's a lot of things, beloved, that has been thrown into the mixing pot of messianic expectations and messianic prophecy. And these poor souls are completely flabbergasted and they don't know what to make of it. Their understanding of how God is going to work everything out has had so many unexpected extra things thrown into the mix. They are, they're, they're perplexed and they're, they're sincerely asking. They're not, they're not asking for him. They're not asking for a sign to prove himself like the scribes said. They want a sign so that they understand how this is going to happen. When and how is this all going to play out and be wrapped up? And isn't that if we're honest, isn't that questions we ask when we try to study the end times? Does anybody have the, have the gumption to say that they've read Revelation and they understand perfectly everything, how it's going to play out? Justin? Almost. I expect a report this week. Well, I think we can see that in verse 4. When we look at the last word of verse 4 when he, they say, when all these things are going to be fulfilled. This is not the normal word that is used for fulfill, as in to fulfill the word of the Lord or to fulfill a prophecy. This, it, this word means to conclude or to wrap up something that has been going on for a long time. Uh, those of you who those of you who have multiple projects going on at work, projects where you can only contribute little bits of progress on a daily basis, and over time you are completing the project. You are bringing it closer and closer and closer to completion. Then there is that final thing you have to do where you, you, you put the cherry on top, you wrap it in a bow, you do whatever you have to do, and it is brought to conclusion. You are done with it. You don't have to do anything more. It's done. It's completed. That is the word for 
for when will all things be fulfilled? When, when will everything in human history, all of the divine projects that are going on that encompass events and people and places and things and movements, when is everything going to be wrapped up? When is everything going to be concluded and come to an end? Matthew 24, 3 uh, captures the full question when they, uh, when they ask there, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming? That's the word for presence or for appearing or for coming. It's, uh, it, it speaks of the weightiness that a sovereign would have when he's no longer just dictating or sending his orders from afar, he comes to your town, to your house, and starts telling you what to do. Those of you who can remember uh, the weightiness of the words, wait till your father gets home. When your father got home, you felt his presence, especially if it was with a switch. That's the idea, that, 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 that tangible, weighty presence that sovereign presence, what will be the sign of your coming and what will be the sign of the end of the age? Well, if we get, as we go into verse 5, we see the, the beginning of the full disclosure. This, I mean, this is really just the setup for the full disclosure. And from 5 to 37, we will have the longest answer in Mark's gospel to a question, and it, which highlights just how important this topic is. One man said that these two little questions, what and when and what, are like two little fingers being s- s- prodded into a dike, and the flood of truth is just gushing out. Verse, look at verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, Now, that right there, if it was something short and sweet, if it was something simple, if it was something pithy, Mark would say, and Jesus told him it was X, Y, and Z. Mark doesn't say that. Mark says Jesus began to tell them. And that says that it indicated some time for Jesus to give his full disclosure. When I think that's evident when you look at the fact that the rest of the chapter is, is devoted to the answer. And because it took Jesus a while to go through it, I don't think you and I should accept uh, hydroplaning over even one of these things. E- even over one of these details that Jesus warns them about. So in the coming weeks, we're going we're gonna, to uh, dive into these. And my intention is to show you how uh, uh, there are ways in which these details could point to the events around 70 AD. There are many ways in which these, uh, these prophecies were fulfilled in, <coughs> in the time of the apostles and in the, to- in the lives of the early church and in the, time, uh, in the conflict of 70 AD. There are also ways in which, these, in which the details of these prophecies could be fulfilled in the church age. But what my argument will be in the position that I hold is that the majority of the, fo- the that the focus, that the intention, that the uh, intent of these words is to point to the events concerning the final days and the terrible and great and horrific things that will happen just prior to the return of Christ. I had more that I wanted to say concerning uh, different approaches to um, apocalyptic literature and prophecy, but as I just said, I don't want to rush through this, so I'll try to get to that next week. But let me give you one so what. One so what. And I, can, uh, I don't need to steal thunder for any future parts of this study, um, we're going we're we're to get to the main point of the whole thing in weeks to come. But let me leave you one so what right now. Jesus knows the future perfectly. 
Does that, does that shock anybody? Does that surprise anybody? There is actually a movement out there called open theism, which says, uh, which suggests or claims that God doesn't know the future. He can't know the future. And he just, he's really good at responding to things and just making estimated guesses. And he's like that carnival guy, you know, who's balancing multiple plates on sticks. And he's just really, really, really good at not letting them fall down to the floor and crashing. Beloved, God, and in this case, Jesus, knows the future perfectly. He's not winging it. He's not making educated guesses. You just remember in the last section, Jesus read the hearts and minds of the people like an open book, and he disclosed what what was in their hearts to the disciples. Here he's looking down the corridor of time uh, in, in a way that we cannot see and so that he may disclose with accuracy what is going to happen. He sees the beginning from the end. Every person, every event, every circumstance, every joy, every trial, every suffering, every hardship, every movement, everything that catches you and me by surprise does not catch him by surprise. He knows the future perfectly. So when it appears as though the world is falling to hell in a a handbasket, I don't know where that phrase came from, but when it seems like the world is falling to shambles, let us be assured, as Psalm 115.3 says, that our Lord, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He knows the end from the beginning. So let us not be like small children who are fearful and frightful, but let us entrust ourselves to a faithful God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for for knowing what is to come and for being kind and compassionate and thoughtful so as to warn us what is to come so that we wouldn't be fearful, so that we would uh, rather than give in to fear and anxiety and concern whenever the latest theory about how the world is going to end, let us uh, rather than give a moment's thought to those things. Let us fall upon you. The, the fate of the world, the fate of the very cosmos rests in your hands. Remind us of that. Remind us of how powerful you are. Amen.